Before we start today's show, we just want to let you know that this episode features Angela Strange of Andreessen Horowitz. As such, we want to remind you first that the show does not contain investment advice, nor is it directed at any investor or prospective investors of A16Z funds. Financial institutions are struggling to move fast enough to compete with new players. Their legacy tech and processes are holding them back. But there is an answer. Our new report, titled Rebuilding Financial Services from the Inside, is a comprehensive guide to what tech teams in financial institutions are thinking and what they want the rest of the business to understand to help them move forward. Head to bit.ly forward slash 11FS Rebuild to download it now. Brands looking to embed financial services in their products want to get to market quickly, and they don't want the heavy lift of building finance workflows and managing regulation. 11FS Foundry is the answer. It's our financial services operating system that lets you embed finance in weeks, not years. And it gives you the pre-built workflows and smart features to win customers for your platform. To find out more and get a demo, head to 11fs.com forward slash foundry today. Hello and welcome to Under the Hood, a brand new podcast from 11FS and Synapse. We're lifting the lid on banking infrastructure and taking you deep into the technology that's disrupting traditional models, shaking up the system, and improving the financial lives of customers around the world. Welcome to episode 10 of Under the Hood. I'm Simon Taylor, co-founder at 11FS, and I'm joined by my co-host Sanket, who's the CEO at Synapse. Sanket, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing good, Simon. How are you? Really, really well, thank you. Excited for this show today. Uh, Do you want to remind everybody what Synapse does? Yeah, for sure. Um, For anyone who doesn't know us, Synapse is a US-based banking and lending as a service provider. What that really means is if you're a product owner, a developer, a founder who wants to launch deposit or lending products, uh, we're by far the fastest and the most comprehensive way to get to market in the US. I love it. You've got that down uh, so so on part now. I appreciate it. In our last show, we looked at partnerships and how they can be strategically important to any organization to help with the speed of getting to market. This week, we are concluding this series, and my goodness, are we going out on a high. We're discussing the future of banking. We're going to be looking to the next five or 10 years and predicting what the fintech landscape is going to look like. As Bill Gates once said, banking is necessary, banks are not. We're going to dig into this and see what our guests think. Speaking of guests, oh my goodness, do we have some great ones for you. Joining us today is Angela Strange, who's general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us, Angela. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Excited to be here. And as our fund RIA specialists would remind me to say that this is not investment advice, nor is it directed at any investor or prospective investors in A16Z funds, and I am excited to talk banking with the U3. Very excited to have you with us and very excited to also have joining us uh, Anne Bowden, who's CEO and founder of Starling Bank. Thanks so much for joining us, Anne. How are you doing? Very well indeed. Excited to um, finally meet Angela and have a chat. Yes, I'm looking forward to this. This is a tour de force of uh, women in fintech and super excited to get you guys started. And actually, Anne, why don't we start with you? I mean, you've worked inside of the big banks. You've built a new bank. What problem are you able to solve by building a new bank that was much, much harder inside of the the legacy institutions? Well, I was a computer scientist that spent 30 odd years working for all the big banks. And well, I think 
banks decided that they were more concerned with solving their own problems and actually reaching out to customers. And I'm a technologist. I love tech. And I was dreaming of the day when I could actually start from scratch, where I could build a new tech stack with a new business model, with a new way of engaging with customers. And in 2014, I quit my job to start a new bank. So that's how Starling started. It was dreaming of all those things we couldn't do in the big organizations. I'd made a list of 17 things. And when I set out to build Starling, I ticked off those 17 things until I built a, a platform, which I felt was going to be suitable for all the things that banks could do, not just the things they can do at the moment. I love that point about what could you do if you had new technology. As Every now and then, I have this habit of checking uh, app data websites to look at how often banking apps are updated. And, and so for in the last 12 months, uh, HSBC has updated their app twice. Um, Citibank around 14, 15 times. Barclays around 19, 20. You know, top end for an incumbent. I saw that Starling has updated its app 68 times. And that's just the, the front end side of it, not the back end side. So there's also something there about like pace of change as a power law and, and, and all of that good stuff. Uh, Angela, so glad to have you with us. Um, you are famous now for saying every company will become a fintech company. Um, does the future of banking require banks in that instance? And what does every company will be a fintech company really mean? Um, yes, and you know, Synapse is uh, helping helping power that. So, why well, every company will be a fintech company? I took a, an, an extreme position that I thought was more extreme a couple of years ago, and is, is is definitely trending that direction. And so, if you think like if you're a company like Lyft, you're a ride sharing company, and that's how most consumers think of Lyft. But you're, if you're a Lyft driver, it could be your primary source of income. And you might also think of Lyft as your bank account, your payments, and they're starting to provide a variety of other services. And so why does this make sense for consumers? Well, well, that's obvious. You're, you're getting everything from one place. It's very convenient. It's where you get paid. You can do features like get paid faster. But it's increasingly making more sense for consumer companies and B2B companies to think of fintech, primarily because they've already acquired the customer, in this case, drivers. And so now if they offer them financial services, they're probably going to get much higher retention. And so that's going to reduce their need to acquire more drivers and they'll keep them longer and they will make a whole lot more money. And so smart companies now are looking at, well, what type of financial services, be it bank accounts, be it payments, be it lending, sometime insurance, can I add to provide to my customers that I've already provided the money to acquire? And they are looking to companies like Synapse to, to help them do that. Um, like I think because companies that start as banks are starting to look to add financial services does, it most definitely does not obviate the need for banks. And I'll actually, I'll come back to something that Anne led with, right? If you're a bank and you can answer the question of who is your customer and why do they choose you versus your competitors where your competitive set now includes more than banks. And if you have a good answer to that, like many banks do, many community banks do, many credit unions do then you're in a very good position in the market. What I will say is that this market and this environment is changing incredibly quickly. And so like any sector, you can't take that for granted. And we're going to talk about that more in this uh, more in this podcast, right? Whereas if your banking used to be, everybody comes into my branch, it's now moved to, you've got to provide all of that and maybe different services online. That's a lot of things to do. So I might say that every company is going to be a fintech company. I'd also say every bank is going to need fintech. 
Ooh, I like that twist. Uh, every bank is going to need fintech indeed. And Sankit, when you reflect on all of that, what are your things that you're seeing as the key things that we're going to start to solve in the market going forward? What pressures are customers, businesses, consumers under that are still there as opportunities? Yeah, um, I think if we step back just a little bit, um, what everyone's trying to do is just enable access uh, for everybody uh, in fintech, right? So if you're if you're if you're an end consumer, essentially what every single entity who's trying to solve this problem is trying to do is let's touch everyone across the planet. That's that's the goal at the end of the day. Now it turns out to be able to do that. To Angela's point, a brick and mortar model doesn't work as well. So you have, so you have to distribute digitally. So that's the first piece. Second, um, consumers are beca- becoming increasingly more um, savvy. So you have to make this intelligent. You cannot just have a product and service that's stagnant. Uh, so you have to be able to deploy updates and changes to it fairly quickly. So when you start adding uh, some of these features, and I think the third piece is I would say like consumer friendliness, and in most cases, tech companies end up caring about their customers a little bit more from a culture perspective than other entities have so far. So when you add all those three variables, um, it turns out this is like, this is kind of a meant to be thing where if you're, if you're an internet company, um, and you have distribution or um, are working to get distribution, adding some kind of a fintech product is making a whole lot of sense for you now uh, versus it used to before because inherently it serves a big need that's still a void in the market. And then second, uh, it's inherently kind of like more sticky. Consumers just use your product more if there's a component of financial services in there. It's demonstrated at this point. So now once you paint the landscape that way, the problems that you're trying to solve for are um, you need to be able to build a stack uh, that by and large is quite generic from a financial services perspective. So every single interface can abstract itself away from the infrastructure so that they can build any experience that they see fit uh, to be able to serve their customers exactly how they need to. For instance, in case of Lyft, that means you might want to emphasize get paid sooner, uh, while in case of um, Apple, you might want to emphasize cashback rewards. It's still the same infrastructure behind the scenes, but you've abstracted away this user interface layer completely, so you can give it various forms and various emphasis. That's the first big problem you have to solve. The second big problem you have to solve for is how do you onboard not just people who have been well-banked, but everybody. Because by definition, if you want to be Google, you have to democratize this to everyone. Everyone's a customer for Facebook and Google. So you have to do essentially the same thing. So then you have to start solving for KYC, AML, identity verification. And then the third thing is, how do you inherently serve customers on a fairly complex product? So the third piece ends up being customer service. How do you serve customers on something that's inherently more difficult than sharing a picture? So then you start just iterating through those three different paradigms. Infrastructure, experience, uh, um, that ends up being the first paradigm. The second paradigm ends up being identity and how do you scale that so that you can onboard everybody. And third ends up being uh, uh, building an interface and and an experience for a very complicated product. So you have to scale customer service as well. So those are three big challenges that we have to solve to really make this like as big as Facebook or Google, if you may. And that's where it's going at the end of the day. Interesting. And what are your thoughts on that? Well, I was thinking about who the customer is, you know, sort of, and and we at Starling have 
different sorts of customers depending on um, the part of the world, to be honest. You know, in the UK, we are a, um, we're a domestic bank providing services to more than 2 million customers, you know, 300, 400,000 um, business customers, and we are providing all the services. Um, outside the UK, we have very much a, we have, you know, um, a banking as a service model where our strategy is to embed um, our, our services uh, within the user journeys of other organizations, um, whereby we can provide that embedded service through our APIs and our webhooks, whatever, to satisfy what customers really want. And outside Europe, um, we basically are a technology company selling our technology. And why we're able to do that is because before we started building our tech stack, we realized that the future hasn't been defined yet. I have a feeling that banking will become invisible. The fact that we do something called banking, that we open an app and do banking, and it's distinct, and it's in a wrapper, and it's something which is different and separate from all the other parts of our lives. I don't think that's going to be the future. I think that financial services become more and more integrated in every walk of life. So success for financial services and success for fintech may be a world where we don't exist. Banking will exist. But this distinct, I'm doing banking and I'm not doing banking, won't exist. So this is how I see um, you know, our strategy is starting developing and how we believe in, and, and, and um, Sankit, we, we, we have the same philosophy here about how we think the world's going to evolve. Um, you know, in the UK, we're basically eating our own dog food. It's, it's, the, it's the whole thing, right? It is, um, we are, are a platform that has millions of customers going through it, providing everything and under our own brand. But that is why we, we need to be able to push and scale our own platform so we can use it outside the UK in lots of other different brands where we power that organization. And I think that is the, and we've got a number of customers where we use it quite successfully in the mo at the moment in the UK. Um, but I think the world is going in that direction. Mm. And most people don't actually get it. It's quite a difficult concept to explain. It's a difficult concept to explain to a banker the fact that they may not actually exist in that form in in in, in future years. I love that point, Anne, that um the bank experience is no longer the destination, it's enabling something else. Finance as um an engaging product probably doesn't make sense. It doesn't create deep engagement. It's kind of a necessary thing, but it's not necessary. People have done a lot of work, like Starling has done a lot of work to make it a lot more engaging. But I love this point about actually, maybe it sits better enabling that you're you're there to solve a problem. You know, Shopify always talk about you're there to, you know, start a business, run a business, and you happen to find that really enabling if you can accept payments or if you can manage your expenses. And it's the difference between that engagement and enablement that's really 
really powerful. I mean, if only somebody coined a phrase like every company will be a fintech company to help explain it, that would be super handy. But I, I, I love on that point, um, and who's the customer? Angela, who is the customer in the, in the future? Are we broadening that horizon in some way? Well, what I, what I really like about what Anne said, right, is if we think you can argue when fintech became a term, but when we first really started talking about this years ago, a lot of it was around, oh, it takes you, you know, 18 steps and paper fields and whatever to apply for a loan at a bank. Now you can come online on your mobile phone and do it in, in, in four fields. And so it was taking super shitty customer experience, making it into a, a better experience. Um, and not to diminish those because it's actually very difficult to do from an underwriting, from a data sort of and, and, and. But I think, I think what's happening now is uh, there's a big shift in, in, in consumer. So that was a big shift in consumer expectations. But now what's driving a lot of this change is just a big shift in how consumers work. And so you think, you know, decades ago, I'd go get my paycheck. I'd, you know, it would land at my bank account every couple of weeks and, and, and I would do my banking. Fast forward to today, you think it's like in the U.S., like a third of the economy considers themselves independent contractors, right? And so things that you would expect that your employer used to do, tax withholdings, expenses, and, 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 they don't do that. Your bank doesn't do that. Who's going to do that, right? And so it's now, to Anne's point, banking services could fit into how you manage your income, your career, um, and everything into that work. So like the different types of work is very much driving that. It relates to your Shopify point, Simon. Um, you talk to people under 18, 25% of them want to be an influencer. They're making money off YouTube, off Instagram, off whatever, right? Fast forward that. What does their paycheck and their financial lives look like? That's a new opportunity for a so-called bank, but it's going to be very much in the form of like Shopify running a business. And there's even other types of businesses that have been around for a long time, like landlords that manage a few properties. You talk to them about how they do banking. Like it's a total mess. And so I think one lens is think through the modern careers of the day and how finances fit around that. And there's probably an, an operating system that isn't necessarily money driven that helps you manage. But how does that platform become very sticky, make money, provide more value? It's through banking and financial services. I love those points. Uh, Sanket, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think um, I think we all kind of see this by and large the same way. I think who's the customer? It's still the end users, right? Like it's people um, who are your customers. But uh, to Angela's point, how people are getting paid and how they're um, expressing themselves with money is changing a whole lot. Um, so it only makes sense that over time um, you kind of like embed something as fundamental as financial services into this, right? Like uh, it would make a whole lot of sense, in my opinion, please, um, and I'm biased, for TikTok to have their own debit card because they they pretty much do payouts on a constant basis. And to Angela's point, there are a lot of influencers that, that use something like TikTok and a lot of young people who would want to use that moving forward. Another trend that's fairly similar is like Fortnite, right? Gaming, um, and people are doing that on a constant basis. So it's becoming more obvious and kind of like, I think it's just going to happen in the future is that you're kind of like bringing all these different platform components to these people, no different to how you did with payments, right? Like uh, uh, payments used to be mailing a check. Uh, they would give you an address and you're going to mail them a check. Uh, you would go to your bank and mail them a check. And over time, they embedded that into their product. 
that's just going to extend to other things in deposit taking, uh, buy now, pay later, um, getting paid sooner. All these things are just various features of the same experience. I like that point about features of the same experience that um, the the customer is changing, the various features are out there. But this operating system point that I think you hinted at, Angela, is a really, really key one because like the if I was going to build a bank for creators and there's some interesting ones like Carrot and Stir and many others starting to crop up in that field, if I was going to do that, there are now tools that enable me to do that so that the banking part of it is much more abstracted and we've always called that banking as a service. But then I can really focus my business on solving for those problems for, is it for creators? Am I solving for landlords? Am I solving for, and then you get these niches of either community. So you get niches like First Boulevard and Daylight and Greenwood Bank that are solving for digital communities at distance, people who have a shared affinity to something, but digital community banks. And you also get these problem focused niches that are, you know, landlords and creators and other things that go deeper into that problem space that provide more value to the customer and as a result can probably justify a SaaS model or some other pricing mechanism that historically a bank that's a provider of commodity financial products would struggle to. Anne? Yeah, I want to ask Angela a question. Okay, As a VC that's, that's listening to people and analyzing the market, I have a wonderful opportunity to ask a question. Um, we see lots of fintechs trying to provide more and more services to their customers. Now, is that in order to provide a seamless service where they are um, they're reaching out to see how they can provide this integrated service? Or is it that they try and define pools of revenue and pools of profitability? And when I look at this market, I'm always questioning why that particular product, why that particular fintech has now decided um, to move away from the, the, the concept of doing one thing and one thing really well to doing more things. Is it because they want profitability or is it because they want to provide an integrated service? That is a very good question. Um, and you know, if you recall a few years ago, everybody was talking about the the great unbundling of the bank, and the the most used graphic in every fintech presentation ever is uh, poor Wells Fargo and their homepage with dozens of startups eating up every single portion, right? Um, so the future is not I get everything from one bank. It's also not I have twenty different financial services apps on my home screen. It's probably somewhere in between. And so I think the smartest founders are thinking, okay, can I get, can I find a wedge to get a large enough group of consumers for a cheap enough price? And there's all sorts of fairly successful ones, right? Like Chime, get your paycheck early. And then they built on that. Um, Robinhood has had a successful wedge, right? And then if I have that wedge, can I monetize the wedge? And I think that's where you're starting to see um, adding on more services in that one, it probably makes sense to rebundle a little bit, but I think it's still a big open question because we can point to you know dozens of failure cases of uh, I sell product A, I'm going to cross sell into product B. Like 99% of the time, that that doesn't work. Uh, there are some successful cases, um, 
And so I think you have to think through like, what is a natural product adjacency and does that make sense? And some of the more successful neobanks have, have done that well. You can look at new bank in Brazil actually is a very good example of started with a credit card, added a bank account, starting to add investing. And so they're managing to layer these on fairly well. And that's both from a find a bigger pool of customers, um, keep them longer. And then by nature, if you own more of somebody's financial life, you can monetize them better. Uh, but I think what you're pointing to is just the need to just because you get consumers with one wedge doesn't mean you can slap 10 more features into your product and that will naturally make sense. Like things are going to rebundle in different ways. And that's still very much a work in progress. And one more question. You don't mind answering another question there, Angela. Oh, Something but then I now you're going to get questions back. Okay, this right. is great. One of the things that I, I'm very interested in, you must see lots of proposals, lots of ideas for future, you know, concepts. Um, everything we're doing at the moment tends to be in the same sort of paradigm of where we are at the moment. You know, sort of, it's a card, it's a mobile payment, it's a, it's somebody um, processing a director, but it's paying a bill. Um, do we see a world where the whole process and the, the cadence of paying bills will change? Do we see a world where somebody will be driving their self-driving car and they'll be paying for uh, their fuel, their electricity in micro payments? Do we see a shift to that new world? Because I have a concept. At the moment, everything we do is because we could only do it that way in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, where we had big mainframes and we could process things and we needed three days. And this is how we did things. We had an invoice with lots and lots of payments. Do we see a world where we leave all that behind? Do we see a world where we won't have a card, where we won't have that sort of constraint? Do you see any of those proposals coming in? And and is it is it the impossible dream? Yes, and you should be a VC. Um, and, and, and because we need to put taglines on everything, I love, um, like, like, think of like, what would Google Maps for money look like? Right? And so I'm 18. And I'm like, I want to retire with enough money to travel and whatever, push button, make it happen. I'm, I'm being, I'm being a little bit facetious. But right, right now, there's a lot of manual work. And in my opinion, way too much education that needs to happen on a financial system that is incredibly complex. And uh, so I think, yes, we should get there. The question becomes the how. And it's, it's, it's a technology problem, but I'd also argue it's almost an even larger consumer trust problem. Like think of the new app that could come over and say like, hey, we're, 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 we're going to get it right. Eh, maybe 0.5% of the time it's going to get wrong. But when that goes wrong, it's going to be drastically wrong, right? And so you're seeing early examples like, um, you know, Tally, which manages your credit card debt. And it builds up that trust. But then eventually a problem that most people were so anxiety like induced that they weren't even dealing with, they now outsource this problem to a to a smart app. And that's just a, a micro example of where I think we could get as software takes over more and more of these decisions. And I think software would make better decisions. A lot of the time, I think that's really, really interesting. And by the way, Anne, you do a better job of hosting than me. So season two, I think we just found our host. Um, let, let's make this happen. But I, but I wanted to emphasize and build on, on Angela's point there about software and decisions. I think about companies like Credit Karma as well as be, having a natural customer acquisition point where I start looking for credit. I also start building my data and pulling it in with tools like Plaid and others now that can start to build that um, center of my financial life. Uh, you know, um, Anne, you know Jason very well. 
well um, always talks about the the uh, private banker in my pocket. And we're starting to move in that way um, where you have software that can really do that. And But if you understand the problem spaces, then you can start to put those pieces together. But we, the how is a great question. And Sanke, I want to come to you with that because this is something that you've been enabling different businesses to do for a while. How do we get there? Is it just the market will inevitably pull us there or are there things we need to do? And, and, and before you answer that, I just want to add this other point. A16Z actually put out a really good slide, I think it was about a week ago, that generally I think there's something like 60% of banks have adopted cloud somewhere, but it's for less than 25% of workloads. So there's just a huge way to go with cloud adoption inside of banks. Is, is technology a part of what's going to be the how and which pieces of it would you say are going to, going to get us to the how? Yeah, I think... Um yeah, so one, yes, I think there has to be intentionality. I don't think it would automatically happen. Um, I believe the most important piece in all of this is, could you, in a very elegant way, um, make the components that build a bank available as protocols, right? So could you could you make various aspects of banking available as software? Uh, and some of it would be managed. Some of it would be kind of like self-hosted and people can change that preference over time. Um, but if you cannot at the core of it solve that challenge and the answer ends up being you need a banking as a service provider uh, for every small, small nuance that exists, right? You need a different banking as a service provider for uh, um, independent contractors and a different banking as a service provider for uh, business banking and so on. Um That'd be a hard future to live in because essentially you would have to upgrade the infrastructure every single time there's a problem that emerges in financial services. Uh, so I think the first thing is, could you intentionally build a general purpose infrastructure um, that by and large can accommodate, like how I said, like someone sitting in the US all the way down to someone, someone, someone sitting in um, Syria post-war? And if the answer is yes... Um, then you're on to something because then a lot of the effort in uh, um, intelligence goes towards building experiences, not not building the enablement layer. So I think the first thing you have to crack is the enablement layer, and then you move from there. And Anne, you spoke earlier about intentionally abstracting from the infrastructure, I believe, and and sort of thinking as a technologist. Like I, I always look at uh, financial. Um, architecture and sort of see that most financial products are largely the same thing with different configuration. Um, how, as you've moved from consumer into SMB banking, what have you noticed when building out that platform? Do you think Sankit's dream of, of a platform that can operate everywhere is, is realistic? I think it's a question of actually thinking in some fundamentally different ways from day one. You know, when we started Starling, you know, I, I made this list, all the things that we would need to do. And um, we have built a platform that allows some of the relationships and some of the data relationships that we build for retail to be used on, on business. For example, um, in the lockdown, we launched a connected card. The connected card allowed people to uh, go shopping when people were um, helpers to go shopping when people were self-isolating. That was a relationship between um, individuals and the data and the account that we had built out for um, SME banking, for small business banking. So there's a fundamental set of thinking that's pervasive across everything we do. And we can use that 
to get to create innovative relationships and products, whether it's the retail side or the business side, whether it's international, whether it's different sorts of payments. The important thing is that the banks were the first organizations to have technology of any scale back in the 60s and the 70s. And that is their biggest mistake. They haven't been able to leave it behind and start again. And by starting a new bank, you can start again and start thinking differently. And because you're not constrained by the old way of doing things, you can think of new products and new relationships and new ways of doing banking. So Starling, yes, we're a bank competing against the big banks in the UK. We do all the things that a Barclays and HSBC will do. However, the difference is that this is the starting point with a new tech stack to do different things and integrate in different ways and create products in different ways. And that's the exciting thing. The exciting product innovation is yet to come. It's not about categorizing your spending on an app. I think banking and how banking weaves its way through user journeys of everything else we do is going to be the exciting thing that actually frees up the financial services industry to provide value and real innovation. It's yet to come. This is all in the future. We haven't done anything yet. Ooh, that sounds like uh, the best movie trailer for the next five years in fintech I think I've ever heard. So I'm, I'm excited to get into that. But it, it, it's probably a good point, uh, Angela, to sort of think about like we've briefly talked about problem spaces and you I think you mentioned uh, the creator space and you mentioned the landlord space and going deeper into those problem spaces how as you reflect on Anne's thoughts there do you think what a role the role these platforms are going to play for these new builders and these new creators and, and how do they get the most out of that yeah, I still think the uh, banking as a service or, or infrastructure space is, is very much in its its infancy because if you think of um, you know what what comes first? If you think like why isn't you know cat or category of people served very well or this feature built? Is it because there's not the consumer demand or is it because it's just too hard to do? And I think part of the reason we're starting to see an explosion, at least in the U.S., of everyone adding financial services is because you can run experiments at fairly low cost now, and you can figure out what works. And so the infrastructure almost unlocks, you know, I, I'd like to make this analogy with, with AWS, right? Like, why do we see an explosion of, of, of internet companies? Well, it doesn't cost $100,000 or millions of dollars just to get started and a whole bunch of VC funding. Now anybody can start a business. Now, with this banking as a service, any company can add different types of financial services. So I think the experimentation that we're seeing is what's going to drive a lot of what Anne is talking about in new and different um, new and different businesses going on um, and addressing new consumers who had previously been underserved. Like to, to Sanket's point, one of my favorite companies is a company called Propel, which has millions of consumers on food stamps. And they're a banking company, right? And so if you look at, okay, why haven't the banks served this demographic? They're like, well, we have fixed costs per account opened of 10 to $30. What is somebody that makes $30,000 maybe a year going to spend? Like, definitely not enough to cover my fixed costs. Can't bank this consumer. What if you started on modern infrastructure 
And you had a very clever and cheap way to acquire the consumer by providing a 10x better product. That's a pretty interesting business and one that we wouldn't have really thought of years ago. And I bet there's many, many more examples of those to come. I, I love that point that the by reducing the cost to serve the, the the cost of the platform, your cost of acquisition potentially changes, your cost to serve, and your business case completely changes. I, that's that's a great point. The other thing is you see people innovating with the data that they have because they have a modern platform. Um, there's a company called Tomorrow Credit or Tomo Credit, I believe, that does uh, almost a a seven day advance as as a marketing gimmick, like a hundred dollars is your first line of credit. If you're a thin file, you're new to country, here's $100. And if you pay us back, we'll give you $150. And if you pay us back, we'll give you 200 So you you almost build a credit score on this seven-day weekly cycle because people at the bottom end of the income spectrum are often being paid weekly. So it, it works on that side. But on the other side, you're also building a model much faster than you would if you were waiting 30 days to learn what was happening or 12 months or something like that. So this experimentation point is the really, really interesting one because you've reduced the cost of getting to market. Um, Sanket, what are the challenges to be able to do that more broadly in other spaces that you see? Are we going to, um, as you look at it from, a, from an infrastructure standpoint, what are the biggest challenges? Is it regulation? Is it somewhere else to be able to increase this experimentation and maybe take it more globally? Um, I, think, I think to Anne's point, like a l- a lot of the challenge early on was around architecture, right? Like, could you architect this in a way where you could build a general purpose infrastructure? That's a very hard thing to do. Um, now, uh, from my perspective, a lot of the challenge is around expertise, right? Like, how 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 intelligent do you need to be uh, before? Uh, how 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 intelligent do you need to be about financial services to to say? Um, to be able to launch a financial services product. And I think right now we're, we're kind of like in, we used to be in like high camp, which is like you have to be fairly fairly intelligent about financial services before you could launch financial services. Uh, I think we're in the moderate camp. Um, we have to get the infrastructure to a place where we're at a none to low camp, um, which means um, most of the stuff around fraud and risk should just work. Uh, it should not be something you have to think about deeply a whole lot so that's kind of like that's the that's that's one of the bigger challenges and then the second big challenge is underwriting which is um how can you onboard somebody um who's new to the country or onboard uh, uh, onboard someone uh, who's not even in the country uh, so those are kind of like the next big challenges because uh, um Again, to Angela's point, it's like if 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 every company is going to be a fintech company, then uh, the borders have to go away. So you have to be able to onboard people across board, not just in a certain geography. Um, and then how underwriting and risk scales as a function of that uh, is is probably like moderate to high. While inside the U.S., it's probably at the medium level, and you have to take it to none to low from like a financial literacy perspective for companies. That's that's probably the next big challenge. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? That I love that point about the the education side of it and how much you have to learn is still a high barrier, even if the cost has has come right right down. And that leads to a point where you're you're still excluding a lot of things. And it's I'm thinking about no code versus full on engineering. No code doesn't replace engineering, but it does make engineering like tasks much more accessible to a wider um, audience. And is there a no compliance and no fraud equivalent of of no code that that kind of makes just takes care of that stuff to the point where it where it just works. Angela, what are your thoughts? Uh, how do you build on what Sankit said? 
Yeah, well, one of the things um, I find interesting slash challenging in the infrastructure space, like what we'll often say uh, that FinTech, like internet companies are default global. Like from an investment point of view, we're not going to invest in the Google for Brazil because Google is the Google for Brazil. But if you look at financial services, right, like the regulation is completely different, uh, consumer preferences for money are even more different, right? So the largest neobank in the U.S. is not going to be the largest neobank in Brazil. But now we look at the infrastructure side, right? So if we take global internet company that decides they want to add bank accounts, are they now going to have to find a separate infrastructure company? The answer right now is yes. In every single different country that they do that, yes. And they're like, okay, well, do I prioritize a couple countries? Maybe. But now I have this consumer education problem of like, yes, I'll be your bank account in you know France, but not in the UK. So I think that there's still a long way to go there. Or if you want to issue cards, right? Are we going to have a, a card issuing platform in all sorts of different countries? So Stripe is probably the best example of you know an infrastructure company that works very globally. There's lots of others that are trying, but I think that still um, remains to be seen how it plays out. Or maybe it plays out regionally, right? Like um, we have the aggregators in the U.S. There's a bunch of new aggregators starting up in LATAM. Uh, I think we're just very, very early days. And because the customer for the infrastructure is changing, i.e. it's any company and many of those are global, it's creating a demand for being able to go to at least fewer providers. Yeah, it's interesting. What's the macro operating system that sits above those providers like you can have at the, the regional level? How do you have that globally? It's going to be, it's almost like finance wants to be global and it wants to be digital and it's been digitized and now we've got better at making it really actually digital, but it's globalized as well in the sense that we took the, the local stuff and we just kind of made it work across border rather than tr- building a truly global financial system. And uh, how do you build on those points? The, the global thing a really big area for you as well? And and what others might there be? I think financial services was meant to be global. I think that it is one of these industries that has a global rule set, but somehow in implementing those rule sets, um, we go plate and we make things more difficult and we create additional boundaries. Um, I think that we're in a world now where it is possible to build a layered infrastructure where we have certain things that pan global, certain things consolidate in order to create um, industry segmentations or regional segmentations. And above that, you have brands. And it could happen, but you need faith. You need to actually um, believe it can happen. And what we've had in, you know, my experience starting a bank, most people told me it could never happen. Most people told me in 2014, you couldn't build a bank. People would never trust you. You couldn't build a technology from scratch. You couldn't migrate users. And all that was not true. We did it. So could we create a global infrastructure on which on a global basis, we build different propositions for industries and for different regions? Possibly yes, but you have to have a few people trying to do it. And with these banking as a service models, with people actually going to market and trying to build something that's both profitable um, and groundbreaking, I think some will break through. I think financial services will be different. 
I think that Starling will take market share from Barclays. Yes. You know, but I think financial services, the real battle is going to be taking the current infrastructure, the current financial services landscape and making it very different. And in doing it, the price points lower, more people can access services and more people can be part of this world benefiting from these services. It's going to be exciting to see. I, I love the the points um, made there, Anne. And I, the thing that immediately came to my mind was the difference between the regional telcos and iOS and the App Store. And actually, as you know, I think about how Shopify looks at its business. It has Shopify Core, and then it has everything that sits around it, and it almost has like an ecosystem that it's built. The infrastructure players that can take that operating system model could be could be really well placed. And we've seen this model sort of play out, but uh, implementation detail in this space is really, really hard. So we're, we're nearly out of time. So I'm just going to go quickly around the horn and ask everybody, what does banking look like in five to 10 years time in your view? And I think actually, Anne, you gave us a really good view of that there. So I'm, I'm going to start with uh, with Sanket and then throw to Angela. Sanket, five to 10 years time, what's the biggest change going to be? Um, everyone has access to high-class financial products. So banking becomes global and uh, the barrier to entry to be able to launch a financial product is quite low, uh, from risk all the way down to provisioning and user experience. Oh, love that. Uh, Angela, how about you? That was, that was, very, that was very succinct. Um, <laughs> I swear I think, that wasn't written. So. No, no. Yeah. I, I think five years from now, if you ask people who is your bank, you will, you will still get a lot of people who would say a traditional bank, but you will get easily more than half that will name someone that is either not yet made or not yet built or is a company that didn't start as a bank. And it will be banking as part of, my suspicion, managing your whole professional life. So it's this operating system. However you make your money, I think that is going to be the layer that becomes much more of your bank. Uh, and last thoughts on five to ten years' time. I think for the future, we will probably recognize the financial services landscape in five years' time. But wouldn't it be absolutely wonderful if it had really transformed and far more people could benefit from cost-effective um, financial services? For the vast majority of the world are not having these services at present because they're too expensive. But in five years' time, will you have got there? Probably not. But perhaps in 10 years, that could be a wonderful future. Wouldn't we love to see that? Well, that is a great place to finish uh, this episode and indeed Series 1 of Under the Hood. So thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. Um, Angela, where can people find out more about you and, and what you get up to? Definitely. You can come to, uh, I like to write a lot on the A16Z website, but uh, on Twitter. And then my email is Angela at A16Z.com. And I am always, uh, always excited to hear from fintech entrepreneurs. Uh, and... Uh, on Twitter, Anne Bowden, A-N-N-E-B-O-D-E-N, and of course, at starlingbank.com. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you can learn more about Synapse at synapsefi.com. Uh, same name, SynapseFI, on LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, if you want to personally get in touch with me, uh, it's just my first name on LinkedIn or Twitter as well. 
Fantastic. Alrighty, you can find me on at SYTaylor on Twitter or um, look out for 11FS.com. You'll see us all there. Um, as we conclude season one of Under the Hood, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. Spread the word, pass the pot along. And if you love the show, please remember to leave us a review and let us know. Uh, it helps others find the show and it helps us out a great, great deal. Um, find out more about the show on 11FS and Synapse social platforms. Thank you so much for listening to season one. Bye for now.